Good morning. It's good to be with you all again this morning. Uh, today, we are going to do something that we've done once before here. Um, if you were around about a year and a half ago, uh, we did a sermon on Samson. And in that sermon on Samson, what we did is we tackled the entire story of Samson in one sitting. We tackled three, we tackled three chapters of the Bible in one sitting. And we're going to try to do that again today. Now, we're not going to do Samson, obviously, but we are going to be in the book of Judges. Uh, and we're going to study a, another long story. It's a story that covers two chapters, chapters 17 and 18 in the book of Judges. And then we're also going to kind of do a flyover of the entire book of Judges. Uh, it's really good for us to focus in sometimes on one or two verses and really figure out what those mean. But every once in a while, to take a step back and to see the forest through the trees can show you a really beautiful picture. And that's what I hope to show you this morning. Um, what that's going to mean, though, is that it's going to require you all to stay with me a bit. We're going to try to tackle a lot of information in a relatively short amount of time. So in your bulletins, there's an outline that would be good to have. Uh, we'll have some other things on the screen, too, and we'll, we'll recap from time to time to make sure that we're all on the same page. So if you miss something or you feel lost, wait for those and we'll kind of reset. So if you're ready to go, let's turn to Judges 17. Okay, Judges 17. Actually, before we can get into Judges 17, we first need to set the stage for Judges. We have to, we, for this chapter, we have to figure out what's going on so that we can understand it well. The particular story we're going to look at today is probably not one that you read all that often. Uh, we usually, when we read the book of Judges, we like to stop at Samson because that's a series of stories. And then we've got these two weird stories at the end of Judges. And so for order to, in order for us to understand these weird stories, we kind of under, have to understand the context. So up until this point, up until the point leading up to chapter 17, the book of Judges proceeds chronologically, meaning that when one story ends, the next one happens after it in time, and we kind of progress through time that way. And so one story leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, uh, until we get to the point of Samson. Chapter 17, though, is different. Chapter 17 actually jumps us backwards in time. The events of chapter 17, which we're going to read in a bit, happen before most of the other stories in the entire book of Judges. It jumps us back to chapter 1, maybe even a little bit before that. Now that might not mean, it jumps us back to the time right after the time of Joshua. Now that probably doesn't mean a whole lot to you now, but at the end that will matter, so just keep that in mind. The other thing that we need to know as we start to look at Judges 17 is that the book of Judges was most likely written by the prophet Samuel. Meaning that those who first read this book would have been used to a king. And so in our story, a couple different times it said, and Israel had no king and everyone saw as they did fit. Well, the reason they have to mention that is the people who are first reading this did have a king. It was probably King Saul, right? So if you know Samuel at all, he, li he lived during the reign of King Saul. And so, th so the, the points that Samuel is making here in chapter 17 are for those who've lived after the time of Judges. So we know a little bit of where we are in history, but there's one more thing that we need to understand if we're really going to understand the story we're going to look at. So I know that we're going to do chapter, Judges chapter 17, but before we do that, turn with Joshua, to Joshua 24. It's Joshua 24. Now if you were to look at the chap, Joshua 24, the first 13 verses kind of recap the conquest of the land of Canaan. It actually begins with Abraham and pulls us all the way up to, into Joshua's present, present time at that point. Joshua 24 happens when Joshua is near the end of his life. It's, almost, it's one of the last things that he does. 
And so he kind of recaps all the things that got them to where they were. And then, uh, and then it's, what we're going to pick it up is at verse 14. So we're in Joshua 24, verse 14, which says this. It says, Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord is undesirable for you, then choose, your, for, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it for us, forsake the Lord and serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us up, who brought us and our fathers out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Then Joshua said to the people, you are not able to serve the Lord. He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your rebellion and your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he will turn and bring disaster on you and make an end of you after he's been good to you. But the people said to Joshua, no, we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen to serve the Lord. Yes, we are witnesses, they said. And then Joshua goes on to make a covenant for them there and actually set up a marker so that they could know that they made this commitment. And so you might be thinking, well, why are we looking at this section? Isn't two chapters of Judges enough But really, if we're going to understand the entire book of Judges, you have to understand the end of Joshua. Uh, The entire book of Judges kind of hinges on this statement here at the end of Joshua. Because basically what's just happened in the passage that we read is that the conquest of Canaan is nearly completed and now Joshua's getting old. We kind of already said that. And so he calls all the people together in one big meeting. And then he gives them a choice. And this choice actually mirrors the one that Moses gives them in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. In Deuteronomy 28 through 30, Moses lays out all the blessings that are available to the nation of Israel if they follow God. He says, if you follow God, all of these great things will happen, and they are amazing. You're going to have rain and season. You're not going to lose a war. Things are going to be wonderful. But in Deuteronomy 28 through 30, Moses also lays out for the nation of Israel the consequences for failing to follow God. If they follow God, they're going to receive all these blessings. But if they enter into this covenant and then fail to follow God, there are consequences for that. And they're very serious consequences as well. They ultimately end in the nation's destruction if they don't follow God. Now Joshua has all of those things in mind when he's addressing the people at the end of Joshua. He says to them in the passage that we just read, here's your opportunity to opt out if you want. Do you want the deal that I'm offering, that Moses is offering, that God is offering? Because if you don't, now is your time to leave. Because the deal comes with both pieces. If you opt in, you are accepting all of God's blessings. God will say, if, you, if you're in in this covenant, if you follow me, I will bless you. It's a guarantee. But, and Joshua says it in this passage too, if you don't recognize that you are also willingly accepting the consequences. Now he says, of course, in this passage, I'm in. So make your choice. And we saw in what we read, the people said, we're in two. I don't know if you noticed this, but then Joshua hears that response and he says, hold on a minute, are you sure? I don't think you can do this. So make sure that if you enter in, you recognize how big of a deal this is. 
and make sure you mean it. Because it's not going to be easy to follow God and he's not kidding about the consequences. But the people, again, declare they want to opt in. And so Joshua says, okay, you've all heard one another. You are all witnesses to the deal that you just entered and hold yourselves accountable to that. It's now a legally binding agreement, a spiritually binding agreement. It's a covenant, and so they have to keep their word. All right, so just to recap kind of where we've been to make sure we're all on the same page here. In Joshua 24, or Judges, I'm sorry, Judges 17 brings us back in time to the time right after the passage we just read, right after the people made the deal that we're just talking about. In Joshua 24, Joshua asked the people if they want to recommit to the covenant established by Moses in Deuteronomy 28 through 30. Joshua is asking the people in Joshua 24 if they want that deal or if they want to opt out. If they take the deal, they accept both the blessings and the consequences for failing to follow God. And the people declare as witnesses against themselves that they want in. That's where we've been so far. At the end of the passage we just read, then Joshua dies, and that's where we pick up the story of chapter 17. So flip with me back to Judges 17 now. Hopefully you still had that held. So that's the time frame, that's the context that we're in when we begin Judges 17. And Judges 17 begins like this. It says, A man named Micah from the hill country of Ephraim said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you and about which, you heard, which I heard you utter a curse... I have that silver with me. I took it. Then his mother said, The Lord bless you, my son. So the story begins with this guy named Micah who lives in Ephraim. If we want to throw up the map on the next slide here. So here's a map of the layout of how the nation of Israel was supposed to look after the time of Judges. This is probably what it looked like during the beginning of this story. You can see that Ephraim there is kind of right in the middle. You can also see that Dan is right there next to it. That'll matter later. Uh, but that's, that's kind of the space that we're in. And so there's this guy named Micah who lives in that space in Ephraim there. And he steals 1,100 shekels of silver from his mom. That's the kind of the, how the story begins. Now these first two verses say something about Micah. First it says that he's a little shady, right? He stole a bunch of money from his mom. But the second thing that it says is that he was super rich. Or at least his family was. It's estimated that the average Israelite would make about 10 shekels a year. And this particular family has 1,100 shekels just laying around. It's 110 years of work for most people. So you can understand why his mom was mad when it was missing, right? So when mom finds out that the 1,100 shekels were gone, she cursed the person who took it. Now, for most of you, curses probably don't matter all that much, but in the ancient Old Testament world, they did. This curse mattered so much that it actually scared Micah enough to admit that he had stolen the money and give it back to his mom. Then this little section ends by him, her blessing him. Essentially, that means she lifts the curse off of him. When she says, the Lord bless you, that curse is no longer hold, no longer holds on him. The story continues in Judges 17.3. says, when he returned the 1,100 shekels of silver to his mother, she said, I solemnly consecrate my silver to the Lord for my son to make an image overlaid with silver, so I will give it back to you. So after he he returned the silver to his mother, she took 200 shekels of silver and gave it to them, gave it to a silversmith who used it to make an idol, and it was put in Micah's house. Now this man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod and some household gods and installed one of his sons as his priest. In those days, Israel had no king, and everyone did as they saw fit. 
So Micah's mom is so overjoyed that she decides to consecrate her money to the Lord. But you'll notice a problem right away in verses 3 and 4. She tells, tells Micah to go take the silver and make an idol. Which for probably, my guess is for some of you, that, that triggers something in your mind and makes you think of a different story. If you were an ancient Israelite, it definitely would. It would trigger another story in which the Israelites took a bunch of precious metal and made an image of God, right? If you don't know what I'm talking about, we're talking about the golden calf, right? They took gold and they made an image of God out of it. In this case, they're taking silver and also making an image of God out of it. But Micah does, as he, it's, it, what it's, what's essentially saying is that this is a big deal. So this should remind you of another major failure in Israel. So, but Micah does as he's asked, and he brings the silver to a silversmith who makes the idol for him. Then Micah takes this image of the Lord, or what he would think is an image of the Lord, and puts it in a household shrine next to a bunch of other household idols. Now, I find verse 5 really fascinating here. Because Micah has some idea of what this religious thing is supposed to look like. He has some understanding of how one is ought, to, ought to serve God. He realizes that it is better for him to hire somebody, to have someone dedicated to his shrine to serve God. That it's better to have a priest than to not have a priest. So he assigns a priest to take care of this household shrine filled with idols. Now, of course, he assigns his son, which does violate the law of God. But it, but it does point out the fact that he has some concept on how religion is supposed to work, how the law is supposed to work. So we've got this household shrine with an idol of God alongside of a bunch of other idols. And what we see here right off the bat is that clearly we're not off to a very good start with this whole covenant-keeping thing, especially in light of the, the renew right at the end of Joshua 24. We're not doing very well, are we? But the story continues. In verse 7, a young Levite from Bethlehem in Judah, who had, been living with the clan of, who had been living within the clan of Judah, left that town in search of, for, in search of some other place to stay. Now my guess is that doesn't mean a whole lot to most of you, and it didn't to me either until I started to really look into it. Is it a big deal for a Levite to leave one place and go to another? And actually, in this case, it is. So in the law... Moses lays out, and God lays out in this case, uh, the, where the Levites are supposed to live. He says there are 48 cities that are supposed to be designated across Israel, 48 Levitical cities or Levitical towns. Those are the towns in, where the Levites are, in which the Levites are supposed to live and practice their priestly things, right? And they're, they're only supposed to do that in these 48 towns. Well, Bethlehem was one of those towns. It was a Levitical city. So this particular Levite was violating the law by not serving in that place. He had left the place he had, he was, that was appropriate for him to work, and he was seeking his fortune somewhere else. And it seems to suggest in this passage that he didn't care much about finding another Levitical city. And we'll see as the story goes on, he definitely didn't because he ends up serving in Micah's shrine, which is not a Levitical city. So this young Levite, who's unnamed for now, which is also interesting, if you remember back to the sermon that we did on Samson, you realize that it's particularly in the book of Judges, names are a huge deal, or the lack thereof sometimes. So Samuel, in chapter 17 at least, decides to not name this Levite. That doesn't mean a whole lot now, but it will later, so keep that in mind as well. So this young Levite, who is unnamed for now, is searching and he comes to Micah's house. And after Micah finds out who he is, he sees an opportunity to upgrade his shrine with a legitimate priest. 
right? He realizes that I have a priest, but it's my son, and that's not very good. But I have a Levite now, and that's better. I can upgrade. And so Micah offers the priest a job. He offers him room and board, and he offers to pay for his clothing, and he offers him a decent wage. He offers him that 10 shekels a year that we said is normal for most people. And the priest accepts the offer and becomes his household priest. And then look at verse 13. It says, Micah says this, Now I know the Lord will be good to me, since this Levite has become my priest. So there's a lot going on in these verses here. There's a bigger point being made. The point that we see here in these first 13 verses of chapter 17 is that the people of Israel have become very confused about how God works. They've fallen away from the law and they aren't doing things the way that they're supposed to. But it's also showing us that the Levites, whose role was to correct and teach the people, the Levites were supposed to study the law and correct the rest of the Israelites when they get it wrong. But we see that's not happening either. The Levites aren't teaching the people like they're supposed to. We see in the end of this passage that Micah has some idea of how things are supposed to work. He understands that it's better to have a Levite as a priest than a non-Levite. He understands that blessings do come from God, but he's gotten a huge piece of the puzzle wrong. You see, Micah's not viewing God as an all-powerful, loving God that wants to bless him if he keeps the covenant that Moses, that Moses made and that Joshua renews. He's viewing God like the rest of the world views their gods. Right, to Micah, God is angry and fickle and needs to be made happy in order to bless him. If Micah does enough for God, then God must bless him. If Micah can differentiate, differentiate himself from all the other people of Israel, then God surely needs to bless him. If he, if he builds an expensive shrine, and he dedicates that to God, and then fills that expensive shrine with expensive idols, and then hires an expensive legitimate priest to run things, in his mind, then God must bless him. But we know that's not how God works, right? God's very clear about that. He's very clear about that in the law that Micah should have known. God's love and favor are not based on the religious structures that we set up. They have and they always will be based on the, religious, on the structures that he himself sets up. In this case, if you kept the law, there was blessing. If you broke it, even in an effort to, to establish a contrary religious system for the same God, you were in violation of the covenant and actually risk of the consequences. This idea of differentiating yourselves or doing enough for God in order to get blessing is how the rest of the world worked. It's very clear in the law, though, that that's not how our God works. Now, this same concept is true in the New Testament, by the way. If you want God's favor, it doesn't matter how much money you throw into a shrine or a church or a charity or how legitimate your pastor is or how or spiritual mentor is or how often you come to church. None of that actually matters to, in order to receive God's blessing or favor. According to Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that counts is faith in Christ expressing itself through love. Now, all those other things matter in the grand scheme of life, but not when it's, when, not, when in relationship to our, not in relationship to our relationship with God. So we see here that Micah was getting this covenant thing wrong, which we've already pointed out, but the end of the pastor show, passage shows 
that the very people put into place to help correct the problem have now become a part of it. This young Levite was supposed to know the law better than everyone else and help correct those who had gone astray. Instead, he leaves the place that he was supposed to serve and and then ends up serving in a shrine filled with idols. It's a problem, right? So let's look back at where we've been. We had a covenant laid out by Moses that was renewed by Joshua that was being confused and violated by this particular rich family who had taken a worldly view of God and had fallen into serving him like the rest of the world serves their gods and by this particular young priest who's still unnamed, which will matter later, who has violated the law he was supposed to be teaching by leaving his Levitical city and serving in a household shrine filled with idols. That's the nutshell of where we've been so far. Hopefully we're still tracking Because the story isn't over yet. There's more. We're beginning chapter 18. Beginning of chapter 18 says this, During this time, the Danites were seeking a place to settle down because they had not yet come into inheritance among their tribes. So if we look at the maps up here, the one one on the left is the one you saw earlier. The one on the right is the one uh, that eventually ends up being. So you can see on the one on the left, that's the way that it was laid out in the book of Joshua and Deuteronomy and where, and where you, were supposed to be able, you were supposed to live. And you can see that Dan is down there by Ephraim, right? Well, if you look at the one on the right, you see where Dan is. Look way at the top there. That's where Dan is. And so to kind of put that in context as we read the story, that's what we're looking at. So it says the Danites had not yet come into, their, uh, come into the inheritance that they were given. And you may be wondering Why? If you were actually to go back and read chapter 1 of Judges, it actually explains that. So when Joshua, at the end of Joshua, most of the land of Israel had been conquered, but not all of it. He actually gives a charge to finish the conquest. And he says, okay, there are few of you tribes that need to finish the conquest of Israel. But we see at the beginning of the book of Judges that a few of the tribes got sick of doing that, and so they made covenants with the people of the land, even though God had explicitly told them not to. And the tribe of Dan was one of those tribes. They made covenants with the people rather than conquering them in the way they were supposed to. And as a result, they were unable to settle some of the best places of, pieces of land that God had laid out for them. So we see here in chapter 18, it's the Danites, rather than turning to God and fighting for the land that he promised, they decide to go look for another place instead. And so they send out some spies to go find to see if there's a better place somewhere out there. And as the spies were exploring, they come to Micah's house and they stay the night. So if you look at chapter 18, verse 3, it's, it's subtle but incredibly interesting. It said, when they, the spies, were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. I don't know if you caught that. When they were near Micah's house, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. What that says is the Danite spies knew who this Levite was. They actually knew him so well that they could recognize him by his voice. Right? They said they were staying there and they recognized this young Levite by the sound of his voice. How well do you need to know someone to recognize them by their voice? Pretty well, right? Most, probably most people wouldn't be able to recognize a lot of people by their voice. But in this case, the, the Danites could which is saying something to us. He's building, Samuel's building some tension here. Maybe this young Levite is a bigger deal than we originally thought. So keep that in mind. The, the Danite explorers are shocked to see this young man here. If you continue to read on, they give him a series of three questions right in a row. Who brought you here, they say. 
assuming that he wouldn't have come to this place on his own. What are you doing in this place? They ask right afterwards. You're not where you're supposed to be. What are you doing here? Why are you here? They're shocked. They don't get it. What are you doing here? They're very confused to see this particular person in the space that he's in. But the young Levite explains his story. He tells the story of chapter 17. And the Danites accept his explanation. And they actually ask him to inquire of God to see if their journey will be successful. Now we could break down this story a little more, but we don't have time for that. But this, just take my, help to take my word on it. This is another example of Israel's confusion, though, and the Levites' failure to correct them. Like Micah, the Danites have some idea of what they should be doing. Right? It's good for them to inquire of God, but they're doing it all wrong. What the, Levi, what the Danites should have done before they even left on their journey at all was gone to a Levitical city and inquired of God there first. But instead, they don't. They just ask this guy who's serving at a shrine somewhere filled with a bunch of idols. They're doing it wrong. And the Levite, again, who's supposed to correct them, isn't. He doesn't. He actually tells them that their journey will be successful, which we know it is, but the Bible doesn't even make it clear whether he actually inquired of God first before he says that. He just answers. So we don't know for sure. Maybe he inquired of God and spoke back, but there's a suggestion that maybe he spoke for God without actually inquiring of God at all, which could be just another example of how big of a problem we've got going on. But the story continues. The Danites go north. They go far north, as we can see in the map here. And they find a fertile city far from everyone else. They see that the city would be a good place to live, and so they quick rush back to their people and encourage them to attack right away. So the Danites gather together 600 fighting men and their families, and they leave the land that God had given them, and they start traveling north. After a couple days of marching, the, the traveling tribe reaches Micah's house. When they get there, the spies let the fighting fighting men know that Micah's house is filled with valuable idols, right? We just spent 200 shekels on this one, and he's got a bunch of other ones as well. And verse 14 is interesting. The spies say, hey guys, there's a bunch of valuable idols in here. And then they just say, hey, you know what to do. And the Danites go, yeah, we do know what to do. And they go and start stealing all the idols. While they're stealing the idols, the young Levite comes out and meets them. And for the first time, you think, yes, maybe he'll finally call them on the law. But look at verse 19 of chapter 18. They answered the young Levite, be quiet. Don't say a word. Come with us and be our father and priest. Isn't it better that you serve a tribe and a clan in Israel as a priest rather than just one man's household? The priest was very pleased. He took the ephod, the household gods, and the idol and went along with the people. I'm sure you can all tell that there's so much wrong going on in this picture. First, the Danites are violating the commandment of having no images, one of the Ten Commandments God gave them, right? That's a problem. Second, they're violating the commandment not to steal, also one of the Ten Commandments. And just when you think the priest is going to call them on it, they actually convince him to join them, and so he decides it's a good plan, and then actually helps them finish stealing the idols, right? He goes in and grabs a handful for himself and says, hey guys, let's go, and takes off. Samuel is showing us here that Israel is a really messed up place right from the beginning. They aren't doing things the way that they're supposed to. Now the Danites themselves know they've done something wrong. So in verse 21, they send their little children and their livestock and their wives and possessions in front of them and march away. 
This is actually a very strategic move. They knew Micah was going to be mad. They knew the next day when he realized all his stuff was gone, he would gather people together and march after them. And they knew that when he did that, he would catch up to them from behind, right? Which is normally where your women and children would be and they would be vulnerable. Not in this case. Now they're in the front. So when Micah gets there, who is he going to run into? He's going to run into all the fighting men, right? Which is exactly what happens. Micah gets his neighbors together and chases down the Danites. And look at the response. Look at how little respect they have for the person that gave housing to 600 people the night before. Micah runs up and they just say, what's the matter with you? Can you imagine how frustrating that would be if you were Micah? They just stole all your stuff. They just, you gave them housing and they ran away. And they just, you run up and they're like, what's the matter with you? It would freak out, right? That's what Micah actually does too. In verse 24, you see that. He goes, what's the matter with me? Are you kidding me? Seriously, you just stole all my stuff. What do you, how, how can you ask me what's the matter with me? Clearly, I'm ticked because you took all my junk. It's my stuff. And look at their response. It says, don't argue with us or some of the men might get angry and attack you and you and your family will lose their lives. If this doesn't sound like a caricature of the mob, I don't know what is, right? Like Micah comes up and he gets angry and they're like, hey, settle down, right? Well, these guys might get mad and if Johnny gets mad, I don't know what he's going to do. So maybe relax a little bit, right? It's, they're bullying him. They're treating him with such disrespect. Hey, if these guys get mad, they might kill you and nothing I can do about it. It's a terrible treatment of their own people. But it works and Micah goes home. The Danites continue to their new land. They attack an innocent people, which we could talk about that for a long time too, but we won't here. Essentially what that means is that they attack a people who are outside of the judgment of Canaan. So God says destroy all the people in this particular area. What it means when it says a peaceable people that are far away from everybody else, they were not included in that. And they were living peaceably. And so the Danites attack them without declaring war and they take the land for themselves brutally. And then they rebuild their city there and they set up their stolen idol there. Now remember how we said there was something a little strange about this Levite, this young priest. Remember how he wasn't named and remember how we said that would be significant. Well, here's where it becomes significant. If you look at verse 30 of chapter 18, you'll see it. It says this, The Danites set up for themselves the idol. And Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses, and his sons were priests in the tribe of Dan until the time of captivity of the land. They continued to use the idol Micah had made all the time the house of God was in Shiloh. Did you catch the name? The young priest isn't named the whole way through the two chapters until verse 30. What Samuel wants you to do is he wants you to look at this young priest and go, guy, this guy's a jerk. Guy, he's not doing things the way he's supposed to. And so you get that feeling for this young priest. And then right at the end of the story, Samuel goes, oh yeah, by the way, this priest that we've had here the whole time is Jonathan, son of Gershom, the son of Moses. That's Moses' Moses, meaning that this young priest is Moses' grandson. The guy that did all the things that we thought was a problem in the last two chapters is the grandson of Moses. There's a reason the Danites know who he is. He's a big shot. This isn't just some little priest. This is the grandson of Moses that's doing things this way. 
So let's take a quick back look over our story one more time so we can get the big picture here. We had a covenant laid out by Moses that was renewed by Joshua that was being confused and violated by Micah and his family who've taken a worldly view of God and have fallen into serving him like the rest of the world serves their gods. We also have large parts of entire tribes that are rejecting God's command and are doing as they see right in their own eyes, brutally treating their own people and those living peaceably around them. We see that the system of priests that God had set up to help set the people right is breaking down. That Moses' own grandson forsakes his call, violates God's law, and sets up an alternative priesthood outside of the promised land whose centerpiece is a stolen idol. What chapters 17 and 18 are showing us are how messed up things were in Israel from the very beginning. And that's the story of chapter 17 and 18 of Judges. Now, it's an interesting story, but what does it mean for us? What do, we, what do we do with it? So like we said, we know that Judges 17 jumps us back in time, meaning that if you had been reading the book of Judges from the beginning, you would have to reset your timeline pretty substantially to be in the right time frame for this story, which raises a really important question. Why isn't this story at the beginning of the book of Judges so that we could go chronologically like we had in everything else? And it's because Samuel is making a point. He's preaching a sermon to the people. Take a look at what this story says to the people. Take a look at what the 10,000 foot picture says. Joshua had warned the people that if they didn't follow God, terrible consequences were coming. That their destruction was imminent. But Israel doesn't keep the promises that they made. From the very beginning of the story, Israel was incredibly messed up. They deserved destruction the entire way through the book of Judges. The covenant that they made, that they were witnesses against themselves in, the consequences of that were destruction. They deserved it the whole entire time of the book of Judges. But God doesn't destroy them, does he? If you know the story of the book of Judges, God doesn't destroy them at all. He actually saves them over and over again. You see, the book of Judges is a testament to God's grace. Over and over and over again in the book of Judges, the people fall away. They have been falling away from the beginning, yet over and over and over again, rather than destroying them on the basis of the covenant that they were witnesses against themselves in, God saves them time and time again. You see, this story serves two purposes. It makes the fall of the nation clear. If the people during the time of Saul aren't carefully careful, it's really easy to mess things up badly. And there are consequences for that, which you can also see throughout the book of Judges. But there's a second point. That's God's not fickle or impulsive. He's not like the other gods in the world around them. He's not what Micah thought he was. Rather, he's patient and grace-filled and long-suffering. The people on their own deserve to be destroyed based on the covenant that they willingly entered into, and yet God withheld destruction because he's good. See, this story is amazing because it's a call to repentance while simultaneously proclaiming how exceptionally and overwhelmingly and patiently loving our God is, even in the midst of our constant failure. And to me, that's a pretty compelling story. And the beauty of it is, it's a story that's continued in the New Testament because this exact same idea is what Jesus taught us, isn't it? 
Jesus preached repentance, a turning away from the world back towards God. He calls us out of our sin, out of the sin of the world, and called everyone who would listen away from that kind of life, warning them of the consequences for not following God. And yet, as Romans says, yet at just the right time, while we were still sinners, while we were still blowing it, Christ died for us. In the same way the book of Judges teaches that Jesus preached repentance while giving his very body to save us from the destruction that we were bringing upon ourselves. It's beautiful consistency, isn't it? You see, the story of Judges 17 and 18 is a foreshadowing of the story of the gospel. We as humans have been screwing up the life that God wants for us since the very beginning. We've got it all messed up. We kind of know what we're supposed to do, but we get it wrong, whether we're Micah or whether we're like the Levite pastor. And even in our constant failure, God doesn't give up on us. He loves us anyway. We deserve destruction, but he saves us. We've failed to keep our end of the covenant. We couldn't keep our end of the covenant. And so God keeps it for us in the person of Jesus. And that means something to each and every one of us. In Jesus, your failure, my failure has been overwritten. The grace we have now is even better than the grace that's offered in Judges. Because, because in Jesus, God's favor does not rely on us keeping the law at all. In Jesus, God's favor is constantly available to each and every one of you. So have you ever felt like you've screwed up so badly that God can't love you or wouldn't love you? whether that's something that you feel all the time or if that just pops up from time to time. If that's the case, God is calling you like he did in Judges back to himself while simultaneously covering your failure in his grace. Have you ever doubted God's patience with you or his goodness? Have you ever thought you have to do a whole bunch of things for God to love you or for him to be happy with you? We see in this story that that's not true. You see, we as humans never deserved God's love. We constantly fall short. We constantly fail to live up to what we've been called to. And yet we see in Judges that God comes anyway, time and time again. And the beautiful thing is that the overwhelming love in Judges is only a foreshadowing of the love that God shows in the Gospels. We see God's love for humanity and judges. We see his patient long-suffering, but we see it continue and grow in the person of Jesus. God continues to call each and every one of us back to himself, desiring us to work towards a perfect life, we see in John, while simultaneously reaching down and picking, each and every, picking us up each and every time we fall. You see, we serve a God of grace and love. We sang about it this morning. We serve a God that doesn't give up on us, who offers us, who offers us himself even in the midst of our failure. He does it in Judges 17 and 18, and he does it in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's a pretty compelling story. Will you pray with me? Father God, we recognize our failure, our constant failure, our constant falling short of the life that you've called us to. But Lord, we thank you so much for loving us anyway, for loving us through our failure, for loving us through our shortcomings, and ultimately for loving us 
through the gift of your body in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the salvation that we could not achieve on our own, but only comes through you. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. If you could all stand and sing our final song.